I'm kind of with Nikita over there. I don't think I've ever uh, cried during one of the opening few songs at Harbor City until today, but uh, that's just kind of where we're kind of where we're at this morning. So, so knowing uh, that we gather here for <clears throat> the last time for a Harbor City reunion on a Sunday morning, uh, there's there's a lot of emotions that are out there and you know feel sad and <clears throat> grieving that we're we're at this point and I think many <clears throat> many of you are are there too and uh it's okay to be there it's okay uh, there's been a lot to to grieve over the last uh, 6 weeks especially and as Dominique reminded us a couple of weeks ago, uh, we should we should not rush that process. We shouldn't cut it short. It's okay to be where you're at. God wants to care for you through prayer. He wants to comfort you through his word and through others that he puts around you. So take all those things that you feel to him to his word, to others, and let God embrace you and care for you where you're at. But outside of the sadness and the grief, I also come this morning with, with gratitude and with gladness, and I hope that you guys can find that as well. And that's because God is still here with us, that he's promised to never leave us, nor forsake us. And I'm also glad that you are here too. I'm thankful I get to, um, this last time to worship together. Um, all of you have become so dear to, to me, uh, to my family, including the last six months, to, to my daughter Lila and how you guys have uh, loved on her so well. For all the times we needed a hand for communion, you guys have uh, always been there for us. Even though Harvest City didn't turn out the way that we had hoped, um, I'm grateful that God called us and, and called you all here. Because our God's in control of all things and he loves his bride, the church, we know that the last five years of Harvest City has not been a waste. Not by any means. While there's been much hurt and confusion and a, and a feeling of disbelief that we're at this point of dissolving, God in his, his perfect yet mysterious will planned that this would, have, would happen from the beginning of the world. And he does all things for his glory and for our good. I realize that this is a hard thing to grasp right now, and it, and it might take you months or take you years or even decades to, to understand why these things have happened or how we, he's using this for good. But even if it takes you a long time or you never fully understand, we can be confident that he did use Harvest City for good because Scripture says that he works out good for those who love him called according to his purpose, and I can testify over the last many years doing life with all of you that you love God. Scripture not only confirms that God has been with us, but that he will be with us. When God's chosen people, Israel, were rightly sent into exile to live under foreign rulers because of their sin and worship of other gods, it did not mean that God had abandoned his people. Rather, God, while working out justice because of his people's sin, he remained faithful to his people and assured them that he would always keep his covenant and be the God to them that he promised to be. In Jeremiah 29, he says to his exiled people, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. My point is not that Harvest City is where it's at because we've sinned and are being punished by God. 
but to show that when things don't go as expected, we can be assured that God still has a good future and a good plan for us. And a good future doesn't mean that it'll be without hardship or that it'll be easy, but it'll be good because he will be with us. This is true for us today, and I want all of you to believe that wholeheartedly. So in light of those truths, in addition to the text we'll be going through today, I hope that that you can simultaneously be sad and grieve while also be grateful for what God has done through Harvest City and be hopeful for what God will continue to do through your lives. The text the Lord put on my heart today to share with you seemed fitting because it revolves around the idea of the harvest. Even though the concepts of the harvest and harvesting haven't really been a, a core value or something we talk about a whole lot, the word harvest has been central to the name of our church and what kind of church that we had hoped to have. The harvest part of Harvest City reflected that you know, even though we always wanted to be a church that's, that's in and of Iowa City, a church that, that knows the people, that knows the culture well, so that we can t- could contextualize the gospel to the people in the city, we also realize and, um, and, and affirm that we're, we're in a state that revolves around agriculture and part of that being the harvest. So wanting to be part of our church identity uh, being in touch with both of those things of the city and of, of the greater um, agricultural state beyond. So today, I hope this text in my message will help you reflect on some of the core ideas and values that, are, that have shaped the name of our church and, and some of our uh, main values. And in, in the midst of sadness that we're dissolving, that you'd be spurred on to participate in the Lord's harvest that scripture tells us about. My sermon title for this morning is Keep Harvesting. The big idea for my sermon today is because Jesus is Lord of the harvest, our timeless call will always be to love like Jesus, pray first, and to keep harvesting. Before we get into those things, let's pray. Lord, we thank, thank you for, for the truth that, uh, that you're here. And you are always here with us. You say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. But even more than that, when you left your disciples after doing ministry with them for a few years, you promised that you would send the helper to be with them, an advocate to be with them forever, and to remind them of of your truth, the Spirit of God lives within us and you go with us everywhere. God, help this message today be full of truth. Help us to be where we are at, where we are at. Spur us on to see your goodness and your grace and to love your gospel even more and give us hope for the future. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first lesson or first timeless call, rather, is because Jesus is Lord of the harvest, our call will always be to love like Jesus. Our text says this, and Jesus went through, throughout, I guess I can read the whole, the whole thing because it wasn't read today, but this is our whole text. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. The book of 1 John tells us that God is love. And because of that, we know that everything God does is out of love. So right away in the passage, we see a snapshot of some of the main ways that Jesus loved the world. He preached, he shared the gospel, and he healed many people. And what did he preach? It says the gospel of the kingdom. And what is that? Well, gospel means good news. And the kingdom is referring to what life ought to look like 
if people lived with the king's teaching or his word ruling and reigning in their hearts without any rebellion to it. And then the next question is, well, who is the king? And the king is Jesus Christ, the preacher himself. Much of what Jesus taught was a rebuke or correction to the misunderstanding of the religious rulers of the day, who were the Pharisees and the chief priests. Commonly, he used the phrase, you heard it said, so, but truly I tell you, as a way to let them know they had misinterpreted God's word. And that he, the all-knowing king, came to bring clarity so that they could truly live in line with the righteous commands of the king. The religious rulers of the day thought if they followed God's law given through Moses perfectly, then they could have life after death or be saved. But Christ's gospel, the true good news of the kingdom, is one where salvation does not come through perfect behavior, but by faith in the true king, Jesus. His message was both simple, but it was profound. He said, repent and believe. Meaning, commit to turning from your sinful ways and turn to His perfect ways and believe that Jesus is the Son of God that He says that He is. Furthermore, the good news of His preaching was that even though the penalty of sin against a holy God is eternal separation from God in hell, that salvation or life after death was waiting for those who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus also let the people of the time know that his gospel of the kingdom was an inclusive gospel. The religious leaders of the day believed that salvation was only for God's original people, Israel. But Jesus came to declare how God's love was not only for the nation of Israel, before the Gentiles, or really anyone else who is not a Jew in society, that salvation is assured for everyone who repents and believes in Jesus as Lord. Not only did Jesus love the world by providing a spiritual healing through his preaching, but he says that he physically healed every disease and affliction. This claim is backed up by many instances of Jesus providing physical healing to the people from the previous chapters uh, in Matthew, including he cleansed a leper, he healed the servant of a Roman official, he cast out many demons, he restored the mobility of a paralyzed person, and he renewed the voice of a mute man. Christ not only treated, diagnosed and treated spiritual health issues, but also as the greatest physician the world has ever known, he loved the world by meeting every physical need of the, of the people who came to him, curing any and every disease of those who came to him, believing that he could heal them. And the text shows us the motivation that Jesus had for doing these things. The text said that he had compassion on the crowds. Compassion. That is what drove Jesus to heal and to preach to the crowds because he loved them. I think it's important to understand the magnitude and the focus of Christ's love by understanding what kind of people made up the crowds that he spoke to and that he healed. When the crowds are described in other places in the Gospels, these are the type of people that made them up. People with various diseases and pains. Those oppressed by demons. Those with seizures and paralytics. The lame, the blind, the mute, and many others. Says. By and large, these were not the celebrities of the day. These were not the influencers. These were not people of high standing or nobility in society. These were the marginalized people of the day, the forgotten, the outcasts, the afterthoughts. Or as the text describes them, harassed and helpless. People because of their disabilities, they had little to no power, no influence, no wealth, 
And they were largely dependent on others to meet their day-to-day needs. The text also described the crowds that Jesus had compassion on like sheep without a shepherd. Well, what do sheep without a shepherd look like? Well, they're bound to lose their way and find themselves in places without food, protection, or personal care that the shepherd would have otherwise provided for them. Because they have no food, they become malnourished and weak. Because they have no one to trim their wool, it grows thick and heavy, and it weighs them down. So that their already weakened bodies have an even harder time of trying to find food and water. As their untrimmed wool grows, it makes their way over their eyes, blinding their eyesight. And without a shepherd to protect them, they become vulnerable to predators such as wolves who look to attack and devour them. In summary, sheep without a shepherd are starving. They're weighed down. They're blind. And they're vulnerable. But the good news for these crowds was that Jesus was not like the rest of society who labeled these people as insignificant and left them to fend for themselves and suffer alone. But he came to be the shepherd that they needed. For this starving crowd, Jesus came not only to to nourish them with fishes and loaves and water, but he came to be the bread of life and the spring of living water. And he said, if you eat and drink of me, you will never hunger or thirst again. For this weighed down crowd, Jesus offered the rest they needed, both physically and spiritually compelling others to come to him for ultimate rest, rest that is much more than temporary relief from an individual's physical or mental stressors, but a lasting and deep-seated rest for the soul that comes through the assurance that despite the the hardships that a person goes through, Jesus is always available to cast their anxieties on so they wouldn't have to carry them alone. And even more, that there is life after death, filled with rest and peace and joy for those in heaven, for those who believe in him. The rest for the soul that comes from belief in these truths are the easy and the light yoke that Jesus preached about. Sorry, I'm struggling here. For this blind crowd, Jesus came not only to restore their physical sight, but to be the light of the world to them. Thank you, Brandon. To illuminate for them what righteous versus sinful living is and where the true path of salvation can be found. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For this crowd that was vulnerable, both socioeconomically and spiritually, Jesus came as the protective shepherd that fended off Satan, demons, and false teachers through firmly rebuking them for their lies and their evil deeds, shielding the vulnerable crowds from being led astray from God's truth and his kingdom. Ultimately, Jesus saw that these people were like a sheep without, like sheep without a shepherd, the text says. And Jesus came to be the good shepherd that they needed. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Because the crowds, like all of us, were dead in their sins and blood sacrifices were always needed to forgive sins. Jesus loved the world so much that even though he was not guilty of any sin, he came from heaven to earth to lay his life down for the sheep, for all of us on the cross, so that these sheep could be freed from their sins and have the hope of eternal life if they believed Jesus had done that for them. 
Another way of saying it is that Jesus had compassion on the lost and the marginalized people of society. And the Bible shows that us that to grow in holiness is to be like Christ, striving to emulate the life that he lived within our human limitations. Therefore, church, even though Harvest City is soon ending, Jesus teaching the Bible is, time, is timeless for us as individual disciples. Thus, our call is always to love like Jesus, who loved the whole world, but had a particular emphasis on the lost and the marginalized people. To love the lost means that we view them in a state of humility, with godly grief that leads us into relationship with them rather than away from them in self-righteous judgment. We need to always remember that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we are no better than the people that we tend to judge, the people who we look at and we see, oh my gosh, they are ruining their life by all the sin that they're committing and they're making my life harder by the ways that they're sin against, sinning against me. We need to remember that we are, are all worthy of God's righteous judgment and punishment apart from Christ taking it for us on the cross. This will shield us from saying things like, I just can't believe they would do that. To saying, apart from Christ, I would do the same thing. Or if we're honest, I did those things. And it would help us to follow it with this prayer. Lord, help me to show that person love and mercy in the same way that you did for me and that you do every day. To love the lost, we should also feel godly grief for lost people who reject God because they're in jeopardy of eternal condemnation and, and they don't probably live with the same joy and peace and hope that we have. For us to love them is to earnestly desire for them to be saved, which should lead us into friendship, into relationship with these lost people by caring for them, by serving them, and by sharing the gospel of the kingdom with them so that they would have the peace and hope that Christ offers. To love like Jesus, we should also have a particular focus on the marginalized people around us. So Harvest City, identify the marginalized people that God has put in your path and bring the, compa the compassion of Christ to them. Whether it be a single mother or a refugee family in your neighborhood, whether it be a minority in your workplace. Maybe it's a family member who has physical or mental disabilities. Maybe it's a lonely person on your block. Or maybe it's the person begging on the street corner. Follow the pattern of our compassionate king and pursue them in love by befriending them and sharing with them the good news of the gospel. Sharing a meal with such people, whether it be over the lunch hour at work or by inviting them over to your home, is a simple yet very powerful thing that we can do to show these people that we see them, that we accept them, and that we want to know them even if the rest of the world doesn't care and sees them as insignificant, not worthy of their time. Being a consistent friend or caretaker in the lives of these people is also a Christ-like way to show love. We Christians are typically more comfortable with one-time giving of gifts or single days of service or short-term mission trips or one attempt at evangelism before we move on to the next person. While those things can be good, I feel like there's a next level type of love that's expressed in a long-term commitment to love a friend uh, love as a friend or a caretaker over months or years or maybe even decades of life. While there's nothing flashy about this type of love, and the majority of the time is filled with mundane and seemingly unnoticed and unfruitful efforts to love these type of people, the truth is that this type of love may be the most powerful way that you can glorify God and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the world. And to know that even if it doesn't seem like any of that goes noticed, God sees you and it is beautiful 
to him, and you will be rewarded in heaven for what you've done, especially the things you've done in secret. For me, it's incredibly powerful to see parents with kids who have either severe physical or mental disabilities day after day, year after year, sacrifice their free time, their hobbies, their money, their dreams to love these kids who need more help. When the way of the world is to choose to abort these children before they're even born, it's one of the most beautiful and righteous things to see when Christians instead honor the dignity of their children with special needs and choose life for them out of the conviction that all children, regardless of ability, are worthy of love because they are made in in the image of our Creator God. That, That type of persevering love is hard, and it's exhausting. But that is the type of love that God has for us. And that type of love that God has for us should motivate us to have that type of love for others. The second timeless call for all of us today from this text is that because Jesus is Lord of the harvest, we're always to pray first. Picking up in verse 37, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. To break down what Jesus is saying, we first need to have an understanding of what the harvest is and what it means for it to be plentiful. For most of us here who have grown up in the Midwest, it's not very hard to understand what the harvest is as the culture here in the Midwest in the fall time revolves around the harvest. Right now, the farmers have just finished the season of planting where they put seeds in the ground that are later to be nourished by the rain, nourished by the sunlight so that they would grow up and by the fall time that they would be ripe and ready to be gathered in The definition of harvest is to gather a crop that has been grown and is now ripe to be gathered in from the fields. This gathered crop is later to be brought into safe storehouses or grain bins where they're protected before they're sold at market. So when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, he's telling the disciples that there's a type of crop that is ripe and it's ready to be gathered in. And there's a great abundance of it. But just as Jesus does many times in the Gospels, he's not speaking directly or literally, but in parable. So he's not saying that there's a physical crop such as corn or soybeans or wheat or barley or garden produce that's ready to be gathered in. But rather, he's speaking about a large crop of people who are ready to receive the message that he preached, the Gospel of the kingdom, and that those who receive this message will be gathered into Christ's safe storehouses in heaven after their time on earth is complete to be with him and enjoy him forever. Thus, right after saying this in the gospel accounts, Christ commands his 12 apostles as well as 72 of his first followers to scatter and say, hey, go to the surrounding towns and villages And tell people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And to do this as a way to gather in this harvest of people that God has prepared to be his followers and co-laborers in his harvest field. As we talk about here much at Harvest City, God's desire is that we would make disciples who would make disciples. We have this call because God has called it to us both in the Great Commission before he ascended into heaven and also here as he uses this agrarian analogy. He essentially says to his followers here, I've gathered you all to myself that you would go and gather more people to myself. Or essentially, I have made you disciples so that you would go and make disciples. But notice that the first thing that Jesus says is not to go right into his harvest fields and start reaping this harvest through relentless evangelism, but to pray earnestly 
the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Essentially, he says, before you start working, pray first. But why? The workaholic, never-stop-grinding culture in, in the, the culture we live in says, well, couldn't we gather in a greater harvest if we got to work right away instead of stopping to, to pray, which if we're honest with ourselves, we think that's a waste of time anyway? This type of culture stems from the belief that work and effort of humans is how ultimately things get done in this life. But Jesus tells his followers to first pray because human effort is not the primary way that things get done in the kingdom of God. Rather, it's God's work that stems from his will that gets things done in his kingdom. For the apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Where God rules, which is everywhere, he is the one in control. Specific to this passage, if a person is to grow spiritually to the point where their hearts are changed, where they are ripened and ready to accept the gospel, it's only the work of the Lord that does this. It's not by human persuasion. It's not by a masterful presentation of Christian apologetics. Like Apollos and Paul, we plant seeds by sharing the gospel. We water them through faithful service and witness in the lives of others. But growth and salvation of non-believers comes only by the hand and will of God. That is why we pray before we harvest. Because God is the Lord of the harvest and people in his fields will ultimately grow and become ripe for the harvest according to his perfect will. Therefore, we need to pray that he would do more of this essential work and to do it by sending out more laborers into his harvest field, which he asks us to pray for before we start working. Or in other words, that we would pray that there would be more Christians that are sent out into the secular world. Praying first before acting is also an outworking of the acknowledgement that we are dependent upon God for all things. Time and time again, Jesus manifested his love for and his dependence on his Father by taking time to retreat and pray to his Father before he made big decisions in his earthly ministry. He did this before he called the 12 disciples to himself. He also did this before he was going to be put on trial and later crucified for the sins of the world. Therefore, not only as we live on mission to the people in our spheres of influence, we're to first ask God for help. But for every endure or endeavor we put our eyes upon or every decision we have to make, we're to pray first. Even if we feel like we're in control of the situation because of our abilities, our connections, our money, our resources, we ought to acknowledge the reality that everything we have has been given to us by God and it can be just as easily taken away from us if it is God's will. Therefore, in God's kingdom, we take nothing for granted, but we first earnestly pray to the, to the Lord of the harvest before doing anything we set out to do. Before you have dinner with your non-believing friends, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Before you buy a house, pray earnestly to the Lord. Before you schedule your next month of weekend plans, pray earnestly to the Lord. Before you take an exam, pray earnestly to the Lord. Before you make choices about what to do with your work bonus, pray earnestly to the Lord. Before you enter a hard conversation with your spouse or your coworker or your boss, pray earnestly to the Lord. Before you decide where your next church home will be, pray earnestly to the Lord. 
Harbor City, it is God alone that rules the world and saves people. Therefore, live as humble and dependent children of God as you are called, glorifying him by always praying first before acting. This brings us to the third and final timeless call from today's text. Because Jesus is Lord of the harvest, our call will always be to keep harvesting. Although I just told you that God is the only one who can grow up people for faith and salvation, God's desire is not that he would take on this task alone. Rather, he invites his followers into his mission as co-laborers to gather to himself those whose hearts he has ripened to accept the gospel. But why does he do this when he could just do it by himself? For that, I don't know. But we know that God's a loving father, and just as fathers love to invite their children into them uh, to, to work on a project with them, even if they know that they don't need their children's help, fathers delight in doing that. And I think similarly, God delights in us, his children, joining us in his good work of making disciples who make disciples. Because of this, after following the commands of Jesus, ask him to send uh, more laborers out into his plentiful harvest. The next step, or after doing that, is to step out as one of the laborers yourselves into his harvest fields. In the passage directly following our text from today, in the parallel story of uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, well, what does, that, what does that mean? What does it mean to labor in the harvest fields? So he tells them this, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Therefore, that remains our work today. Now, not that everyone has been given the gift of miraculous healing that Jesus gave the twelve, but nearly all of us can labor in God's harvest by beckoning our non-believing neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, and friends by telling them that the kingdom of God has come near them. Well, some of you may ask, but how do you know? How do you know if God's really drawing near to the people that I'm interacting with day to day? What if the person I'm talking to is not ready to accept Jesus? What if they never will? They seem kind of hostile to the gospel. And I'm sure the 12 and the 72 had the same concerns. They had the same doubts. Well, what if they reject us? What if they reject that? What if that's not true, Lord? Despite their doubts and our doubts, Jesus' call remains the same. Do it anyway. However, because we don't know, we might as well have an optimistic mindset that God is drawing near to the people that you're interact and interacting with. As to say the contrary to a person, I just don't think God would draw near to a person like you is equally as untrue, possibly, and definitely less winsome as an evangelistic strategy. And it's definitely not going to help people see the love that God has for them. In those conversations, one piece of evidence in favor that God is drawing near to them is you. God has put you in a particular moment, in a particular place, with a particular person, and what's the job that he's given you to do? Make disciples. To make disciples. And tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Maybe God's not calling that person to himself at that time. But how do you know if you don't at least steer the conversation in that way? Maybe God's in the process of making them ripe for the harvest, but it's for a different Christian and a different time to lead them or help lead them into the kingdom by inviting them 
to, to pray a prayer of, of faith and accepting Jesus into their heart. Regardless if we think people will accept or reject the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus calls for us is the same, labor in his harvest field by beckoning non-believers into a relationship with him. Yes, it will be awkward. Yes, you will be nervous. Yes, you will be rejected at times. But through faithful perseverance in the Lord's work, you will certainly give glory to God. And at some time, I'm sure, you'll be able to be a part of helping people walk into the kingdom of God by imploring them to accept Jesus into their heart. And when you do so, you will be filled with joy knowing that this person is now a beloved child of God with a future of heaven and that there's a party going on in heaven because Scripture says there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Much to celebrate. There will be great joy in this labor at times. So Harvest City, even though our time is coming to an end, keep harvesting. Keep harvesting. Now, there are many other ways to co-labor with God in his harvest fields outside of healing and evangelism. As I shared with you last month, Jesus says the work of God is simply to believe in the one he has sent, which is himself. Furthermore, Jesus said that even he, the king, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, we can co-labor with God by serving others like he served us. We can co-labor with Christ by living out all the other one another statements in, the, in Scripture, such as to love one another, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to exhort one another, to rebuke one another, pray for one another. I also believe we can labor alongside God for his glory by remembering how God used this church for his good. And by continuing to live out the mission and the core values of Harvest City. Even though we hoped and dreamed for much more, fight to remember all the good things that God has done through this church and the ways that he has blessed our neighborhoods in this city. And take time to praise him for his blessings and that he allowed you to be part of that. all the baptisms that we witnessed here some of the most joyful moments all of the children that we dedicated to the Lord and committed that we would help raise them up towards Christ likeness to watch so many of you mature in your faith and grow to be more like Christ is truly a joy for me for all the ways that couples uh, were brought together in this church, and many even uh, are married now, and through marriage conferences, and just through um, just the discipleship that's happened, to see, see them grow, the parenting conferences, um, helping us to, to learn more about who God has made us to be and our, and our motivations through the Enneagram conferences. And uh, even though we're called to all deny ourselves that we can be who God has made us to be as indispensable uh, parts of his body. Through the ways that we have pursued diversity and loving people who are not like us and how unfiltered conversations have, have spurred that on. The prayer and worship nights that we had in, uh, in this space, worshiping God together through the Easter time, through our Tenebrae services, through just the joy of all of the Sunday, uh, the Easter Sunday services we had here. The ways that we impacted the city through providing furnishings for um, underprivileged people through houses and homes and through the ways you serve through MLK Day. 
um, and some of the sweetest things, uh, the friends that you didn't have before you came to Harvest City, that you have met here and become some of your closest people, that you have gone through both the ups and the downs of life, that you've shared many joys as well as the sorrows and helped pick one another up through those and point them back to Jesus for the ways that uh, you've brought so many, so many children into the Lord, into the world, and just the, the beauty and joy that, that it has been to, to see them grow up and, uh, and see them grasp the concepts of the gospel through the kids' ministry classes downstairs and just by um, observing faithful parents and other people like you as they grow other things like missional family trips and vacations, just getting away uh, and, and enjoying one another. Just really sweet, sweet times and sweet things that God has done in this church. So don't let all the hurt and the confusion and the division from this last season in Harvest City block you from remembering all the precious works that God has done and thank him that he's allowed you to be part of that. But even though Harvest City is, as an organization is ending, uh, Ryan Ar Arnold remember, reminded the transition team in the past couple of weeks that the church truly lives on through you. In light of that, I urge you all to labor alongside of the Lord by carrying on the spirit of Harvest City, by continuing to live out its mission and its values. Make disciples who live out the gospel in all of life to join with God to see the city restored, the state restored, and to the ends of the earth. May you continue to be authentic, allowing others to love you by vulnerably sharing with them all your burdens and find joy and purpose in the unique ways that God has made you. May you continue to strive for unity in diversity. Christ came to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, including to break down the divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Thus, continue to partake in this honorable work as ministers of reconciliation to fulfill the prayer that Jesus had to the Father in John 17, that they may be one just as you and I May you continue to live life as a team in community. Our three-in-one God never lived life alone, and he set for us the pattern that we are not to do that either. The best growth in discipleship happens as we day by day point each other back to Jesus through the ups and downs of life. And so especially in this time going forward, as we're searching for new church homes we urge you to do it as a team. Do it together. And continue to meet with one another as, as regularly for, for meals. Open God's word together. To go deep together. To confess your sin to one another. To pray for one another. And to continue to do the work of the church and community. And finally, may the gospel be central to all that you do. In memory of the great pastor and author Tim Keller who just passed away Friday, remember all, always that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's not where young believers start and then as they grow and mature, they move on to something else. Rather, he says, the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It is the beginning of and the end for Christian transformation. And it is the fuel that we need to be able to live faithful, persevering lives to the glory of God. Therefore, we need to remind ourselves every single day of the beautiful reality that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believed in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. This is the best news that the world has known.
And it's why we gather. And it's why we urge you to continue to gather in a new church home. That despite your sin, that despite the people you've hurt, despite the ways that you've failed, despite the ways you're unable to be the person that you want to be, through faith alone, Christ forgives you. And he accepts you as a beloved child of God. I pray that each of you would find joy, peace, satisfaction, and hope each day as you meditate on the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. You have been so kind to us in bringing us together. Lord, we deserve nothing good. But you continue to bless us anyway. And you've blessed us through this church. God, thank you that you have allowed us to be part of this movement, even though it's ended in a much different way than we expected. God, you are still here and you are still moving. Help us to always look back at this season of life of this church with gladness and gratitude in tandem with our sorrow and our grief and to know that the gospel the gift of salvation is always offered and always true for those who come to you in faith thank you God for that be with us strongly be with us as we go we love you Lord